Hello, everybody. My name is Andy Fernandez. And my name's Michael Fernandez. And welcome back to another episode of What Makes It Great. Today is our final episode from the 1940s. We are diving into The Third Man, came out in 1949, directed by Carol Reed, and it was ranked number 57 on the original American Film Institute's list and not ranked on the 10th anniversary update. Oh man, that's a big drop-off. I know, and I had never seen this movie before. I had heard of it slightly, but not familiar with it. I just kind of, I feel like I just remember like the cover of it at like a blockbuster or in the library at something, and it was like, looked kind of cool and striking, but Mm I had never seen it before until a couple days ago. Yeah, me neither. I saw it yesterday. (laughs) Nice. Um, And this one is one that's available for rent um, on some streaming services. Yeah, I rented it on Amazon, and it said 1950 on there. But then I checked our list and all the other lists, and it said 1949. Do you have any info on that? Was it, like, released later on more publicly in the 50s or 1950s? So my thinking is that this movie kind of cheats, and, like, I don't know if it belongs on the list in some respects because it's an American film institute list, supposed to be the top 100 greatest American movies of all time, and this movie is largely a British movie. Is Carol Reed, is that a British director? British director, British production company. It's a, Carol's the, not a man, right? Carol's a female. Carol is a man. It is. See, I knew it. I knew I was going to make that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Reed is a man. Um, and it's largely all British stuff. The only claim that it has to America is that it, one of the producers is um, an American producer. Oh, my gosh. I totally blanking on his name he's a big one uh i think it's david o selznick let's see let me pull it up here from like gone with the wind oh actually i don't know if that's gonna show up on that list let me i'm also like doing my imdb (laughs) stuff here i'm bad i'm i totally should have written this down um yeah it's david o selznick um he is a he's a producer and then he produced alongside a british producer and then the two big stars in the movie joseph cotton and orson wells are american but everybody else again right everyone else involved in the production of it the producers directors writers other actors it's all british Mm -hmm. like it was shot in on location in europe but also in studios in london um it's just it's a very this is, and it's often ranked as like on British film, the Brit, the BFI, the British Film Institute's like top movies of all time. Um, so, but it, I guess it's it's a co-production between Britain's British studios and American studios ultimately. So I think that's kind of how it gets weaselled onto this list. Okay, uh, and then already I understand why it's taken off. This movie's entirely like in Europe. <laughs> it's supposed to be in Vienna, right? But it's all shot in mm-hmm. England. Uh, I think there were some stuff on location in in uh, Vienna. Uh, there are, um, and then there's things that were shot on this soundstage on a studio. Um, but a lot of it was shot in Vienna. Hmm. But anyway, so it's it's odd. It's going to be an oddity on the list. It's basically a British film of on a list of great American movies. Um, but uh, Carol Reed is the director. He is a British director, and notable thing is that he would go on to win an Oscar for Oliver in the 1960s. Um, That wins Best Picture and everything. Um, But this is his other really big movie, but Oliver was probably his most successful movie. 
Um, Is that the, the right, sir? Can I have some more? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, the writer of this movie is Graham Greene, who is a British writer who writes a bunch of like mystery thriller type novels and a bunch of novels dealing with like themes of Catholicism. He's mm. kind of a well-known like Catholic writer kind of thing. Um, Interesting. And he comes up with this idea for the movie for the third man, but before he sets down to write the screenplay, he basically writes a novella first, and then doesn't but doesn't release it just like so he could write the story basically and then adapts his own novella into the screenplay and then the the eventually the the like prose version of the of the um story would get released later but it was written as in for the intention of being a movie but he did like an extra step of writing basically a full book version of it before writing the screenplay i guess just because he Wanted to go the extra mile. <laughs> wow. Good for him. Yeah, you did it, yeah. buddy. <laughs> uh, and then we've talked about Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles before. So the only other person I have to talk about is the uh, musician, the composer for this movie. Oh, man. Um, so good. Anton Karras. He is an Austrian zither player. And the music enti- in this movie is entirely done with an instrument called the zither. It's like a mix is like a like a mandolin yeah um kind of italian thing or austrian thing yeah and this guy was just an unknown guy who the director discovered basically playing and when he was playing in a bar and he was like hey you want to write this music for this movie i'm doing and he was like really panicky about it but and like filled with anxiety about it but he eventually did it and the theme from this movie ends up becoming like an international number one hit <laughs> like and uh wow that's really awesome yeah and so the the music is super odd but it works in a really weird way in this movie it is really odd mm-hmm. <laughs> like almost too happy or excited at times yeah, it, I definitely. It, it feels like a weird kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Too light it's a real. And airy and, yeah. yeah, and it's a real dark movie. Uh huh. Both in terms of like the lighting used and also the subject matter. <laughs> yes. Um, the only other thing I have to talk about, we already talked about. It, it's mainly shot on location, and it's mainly a British film. Um, but also just like con- historical context, this takes place in post World War II Vienna. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that I kind of went over my head a little bit with the tense relationships between all these different factions in this town. Mm-hmm. There's like a zone that's controlled by the Americans. There's a zone controlled by the British, uh, by the, the French, and the Russians. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of have a real tense relationship with each other. And it's basically the start of the Cold War. Like everyone's distrustful of the Russians, basically. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, that's kind of where this movie's taking place, kind of in the middle of this really tense Cold War kind of atmosphere. Yep. And there's like all this rubble and everything from World War Two, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty neat. I wonder how long or how many years it took for all that stuff to get cleaned up and everything. Yeah. I feel like if this was a Warner Brothers movie, this would have definitely, and Orson Welles wasn't in it, uh, then this definitely would have been just, you know, made in the studio kind of thing on the on the lot, just had a bunch of uh, fake rubble, but, you know, they're really mm-hmm. going through the rubble of World War II. Yeah. And I had never, like I said, I'd never seen this movie before. I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I liked it. I, I liked it. I thought it reminded, it reminds me a lot of Double Indemnity. Uh-huh. But I liked this one more than I liked Double Indemnity. 
I don't know. Double Indemnity had uh, Veronica Lake, right? No, it had... Um, Veronica Lake was Sullivan's Travels. Oh, that's right. Double Indemnity, I don't remember her. Barbara Stanwyck, I think. That's right. Yes, the crazy, crazy lady. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one's got Orson Welles. Yeah. And I love him in this movie. Yeah, he's great in this movie. And Joseph Cotton is awesome. So yeah, he's great yeah too. I guess I do like this a lot more than Double Indemnity. All right. You want to get into the movie? Let's do it. Okay. We start with the credits. Um, and one name kind of stuck. I was like, there was an assistant director, Guy Hamilton. I was like, who is that? Uh, he goes on to direct like a bunch of, like four or five James Bond movies later on, including Goldfinger. Cool. And so he was an assistant director, and apparently he's a stand-in in some shots for Orson Welles. Huh. Um, whenever Orson Welles was being really difficult to work with and was, like, not on set or something, mm-hmm. um, uh, Guy Hamilton would stand in for him in shots when they didn't need to show his face. Wow. So that's super interesting. But I, uh, um, I watched this on Amazon, and at the very beginning I had, you know, it does that thing where if you, like, hover the mouse, if you move the mouse, it'll show you, like, a little trivia on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's talking about Orson Welles um, <laughs> just kind of wasting time during the production trying to run around with Carol Reed being like we gotta get good shots he's just kind of obsessed <laughs> with doing that like he was in Kane but there's uh-huh. definitely some like really really low angle shots and then even mm-hmm. some aerial shots in this movie um, mm-hmm. so even though it wasn't like produced and made by Orson Welles um, he definitely seems to have some sort of influence on it, or definitely <laughs> Carol Reed, maybe just you know magically uh, you know, did the exact same stuff that they did in Kane. <laughs> yeah, there's because of the similarities between the look of this movie and the look of Citizen Kane. There's long been rumors that Orson Welles secretly directed this movie. Yeah, um, seems like it. And uh, eventually, he kind of would stoke those rumors for a while. But eventually, I think it's he came out in an interview was like, "No, that was all Carol Reed's." Like he did have some contrib- contributions, including one of the most famous lines in the movie that he delivers. Mm-hmm. Um, but largely, he seems to admit that Carol Reed um, was the director of this movie and had everything to do with it. Except you can see Kane and. Orson Welles' influence all over this movie. All over it. <laughs> yeah. And during the credits, we also need to talk about the Zither music. It's playing the main theme song of this movie, and it is such a bizarre, interesting, hypnotic, sometimes annoying um, <laughs> piece of music that's like ding, ding, ding. I don't know how to do it, but it's like really, really bizarre. Yeah. It feels like you're on vacation in Vienna. Yeah. Yeah, or like on some tropical island or something, almost. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, kind of like uh, giving you the feel that everything's okay, and yeah, we're about to, I don't know, have like a story, maybe like a Philadelphia story, something light and, uh, you know, I don't know, interpersonal and romantic maybe even, and yeah, it's the beach and sunshine, it feels very, yeah, tropical. Mm-hmm, Yeah. Um, but that's not what we're going to get. Nope, uh, we get dark. Vienna, <laughs> post-World War II. There's a narrator who's talking about, kind of introducing us to this world. I believe it's the voice of the director, Carol Reed. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. We'd run anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Of course, a situation like that does tempt amateurs, but... Well, they, you know, they can't stay the course like a professional. 
Now, the city, it's divided into four zones, you know, each occupied by a power, the American, the British, the Russian, and the French. But the center of the city, that's international, policed by an international patrol, one member of each of the four powers. Wonderful. He's like, Vienna is separated into four zones, American, British, Russian, and French. Um, there's a black market that's pervasive throughout Vienna um, with a lot, he's like, and some really professional black marketeer, black market, you know, racketeers or whatever, and then some amateurs. And we see like, when, he, when the word amateur, like we see a dead body floating in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we learn someone named Holly Martins, has, and that's Joseph Cotton has come to Vienna to see his friend Harry Lime for a job. Oh, I was going to tell you, wait, I was going to tell you about Holly Martins, an American, came all the way here to visit a friend of his. The name was Lime, Harry Lime. Now, Martins was broke and Lime had offered him some sort of, I don't know, some sort of a job. Anyway, there he was, poor chap. Happy as a lark and without a cent. And we see, we meet Holly Martins uh, as he gets off a train and Harry Lime is not there to meet him. So he goes to where Harry Lime's staying, and there's an old man, like a porter, at the, uh, I think he's credited as, like, the porter or something, mm-hmm. um, at, his, at Harry Lime's home, and he tells Holly Martins that he is too late, that his friend Harry Lime has died. Um, he got hit by, he was walking on the street and got hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh my god, so. There's been a murder. <laughs> there's been a murder in Savannah, and... <laughs> By the way, he did goes, we say this was a film noir? I don't think we did, but it, yes, it is a film noir. Okay, good. Yes, so this is a film noir. Uh, we just got started. We got the murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what other? I don't. I don't know if this um, girl entirely cl- is uh, fits no, the I don't think role she, of a femme fatale, but she I don't think is she like does. A, the main female, though, in the movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, her character's name, I think, is Anna Schmidt. Miss Schmidt. Um, and her, she's credit. She has like a one name. It's like Valley or Valley Va- or something. I don't know. It's like it's like she's like Cher or Madonna or something. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, oh yeah. So he go. He learns his friend is dead, and he goes to a cemetery where he sees Harry Lyme being buried. There's a service happening there, and there's a priest that's speaking in German. A woman is there who is Anna Schmidt, and uh, Holly Martin's tosses some dirt on the coffin. And uh, there's a lot of because this is like such a European place. All the there's some a lot of foreign languages, a lot of German that gets spoken in this movie. Mm-hmm. And this movie is a mystery. Um, I think the unsubtitled foreign languages being spoken kind of adds to that. It makes it seem like a really exotic movie on top of the music, mm-hmm. um, but also really mysterious. Like we're never really getting kind of the full picture or mm-hmm. the the exact correct information. And I think that really adds to this movie a lot. Yeah, I do too. Um, you've got lots of cool. I mean, it's just I was thinking about it. Like, it, I mean, does this fit on this list? Because they were just like walking down the streets and just the style of, you know, European roads and buildings and everything. It just seemed so different and out of place. If it seemed really cool and really pretty, but it seemed like, yeah, I was studying German expressionism films and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, film noir has a lot, takes, you know, apes a lot of stuff from German Expressionism. And I think it's interesting that we get to see it through a British lens, a cult, British cultural lens, but also mm-hmm. kind of British sensibility, what, it, what, that, what it's going on in British cinema at the time. So it's a weird kind of glimpse that we're not going to get to see much of mm-hmm. on this particular list. But we do movies. get to, I mean, we, you know, we get to hear, I mean, 
German language being spoken. It's unsubtitled, like you were saying. You can still mm-hmm. kind of understand what's going on with context. Um, yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's not quite as confusing as the Maltese Falcon or Double Indemnity, but it is mm-hmm. pretty darn confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Martins gets into a car with Sergeant Calloway of the British police or British military police. And they drive past the woman that was at the grave site, and Calloway kind of turns his head and stares at her as, as the car drives past her. Um, I, I like that shot, and they do a really great mirroring of it at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then Martins and Calloway go for a drink. And this is, I think, the first time I noticed this, but I think it may have happened before, but it definitely happens throughout the movie where the camera is really tilted and it's not flat when they're while they're drinking. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's whenever he's um he's drunk and he's like laying on his hand or laying on his mm-hmm. hand and elbow on the table and then his head's kind of tilted. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, the camera is like tilted with his head, so it looks like he's right side up and then um in the background the guy you're focusing on who what is he the British military police guy is that what you said? Yeah, Calloway. Calloway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's um in focus but it's it's really cool and then it does shot reverse shot while they're talking so it mm-hmm. you know unlike kane this part is not very kane kaneian <laughs> yeah um it doesn't you know let you do the focusing it does definitely holds your hand and does shot reverse shot and like whenever cotton's talking it you know you're looking from the other person's point of view at him and then vice versa mm-hmm. um but it's really cool because it does that like angle and then normal and then the angle and then the normal whenever they're talking yeah, and this angle, it's called a Dutch angle, um, but it's, it's, you've seen it a, probably a lot nowadays, but this might be one of the first instances we've seen it on the list mm-hmm. where, you know, the camera, it's not, you know, it's not parallel with the ground, basically. It's like at a it's, 45 degree or Yeah, it's, the camera's degree. at an odd 45 degree angle, as if you have tilted your head and you're looking at, at the, uh, the angle like that. And um, it's... You know, here I thought it was really effective because it's it made it interesting, but it also it's like he's drinking, so it makes you feel off balance uh-huh. um, because he's drunk, I thought. So I was like, oh, that's a really cool, clever use of it. But they do it a lot, and I think it's kind of because you're not really sure. You're literally kind of un, you have, you're on unsure footing mm-hmm. in this story. You don't really know exactly what's happening, what's going on, and you're trying to unravel some, the mystery of the movie. And I think the camera angles that are tilted really play into that a lot. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but there are also a lot of cane-like shots where there's a lot of deep focus, a lot of dark, a lot of shadow, a lot of light um, that's done in really inventive ways. But uh, this is a is a different take on things in this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learn that Holly Martins writes cheap novels about like cowboys and westerns and stuff like that, and um, and uh, Calloway also says that Harry Lyme is better off dead because he was a racketeer, and he kind of implies that Harry Lyme was involved in murder as well, uh, or death in some respects, and that, you know, maybe he's just better off being dead based on what he was kind of getting involved in. Yeah. So, okay, this scene here, we've got, you were talking about him being the author writing, like, murder mysteries. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got... James Cotton, what's his name again? Joseph Cotton. Uh, Holly Martins. Joseph Cotton. Holly Martins. Mm-hmm. Um, he is there drunk at the table, and he's talking to this police guy, this police chief guy. And he's, you know, over here, his friend from whenever he was a kid, he's got good 
a good lens, you know, looking at this guy and he's about to give him a job and everything and then he's dead. So he's sad and he's like mourning for his friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've got this cop and he's like, your friend's pretty bad. Like, I don't really like him very much. And he was kind of evil dude. And he was doing all this racketeering evil stuff that we'll find out about in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he doesn't really believe him. They're kind of at odds right here. So you've got Joseph Cotton still defending um, his dead friend and then mm-hmm. uh, the cop on the opposite side. And then in the middle, you've got the cops, like, I don't know what his assistant, his partner. Yeah. Um, I forget what his name is. Me too. I feel like it's like Pine or something. I don't remember exactly. Something like that. But he has to pick up and help um, really drunk Joseph Cotton off the uh, out of the little seat in the booth and everything and when he picks him up he's like oh you're hey you're that author guy um and then he like he's like oh no this is one of those murder mysteries right now are you writing something right now mm-hmm. um and then the other guy the other cop the main dude Callaway. Payne. i just looked up his name Payne, uh, Payne and calloway yeah. so yeah then calloway's like oh yeah you just need to leave that alone like don't do any investigating you're let us do our job uh just give me the information and stay out of my way kind of thing Mm-hmm. Um, and he's all drunk and he's like oh i'll show you i'm gonna go on my own investigation <laughs> yes he's like yeah i'm gonna find out what really happened yeah um and he's kind of i guess he because of his writing he views himself basically as an amateur detective i think basically um so martins goes to a hotel and there's a man there who basically offers to pay for his stay because he knows that he's a writer and he's like i um, work in the cultural propaganda office or something and i am hosting all of these cultural events for the people of vienna and i would like to have a presentation on the contemporary novel and i would love it if you could speak at it and if you do i will pay for your stay and he's like you know what this is great i will agree to speak so i can stay longer and get to the bottom of what happened to my friend mm-hmm and then at that moment, he gets a call from a man who wants to meet him at a nearby cafe because he says he knew Harry Lime. And so he's like, all right. And that guy is named Baron Kurtz. And he goes to meet this guy at the Mozart Cafe. I don't and know, I really remember this guy. <laughs> he's, he's, he's like holding a little dog. He's one of, the, one of the main friends of Harry Lime here in this movie. Um, he's... He kind of tells him everyone is involved in some sort of racket in Vienna, um, but he uh, he can't really help too directly, but he can give him some advice, and he tells him how Harry Lime died. Uh, he got he was got hit by a car while he was walking, and Baron Kurtz and a Romanian guy named Popescu or something like that um, pick him up, pick up Harry Lime, carry him across the street to... Uh, to the sidewalk and underneath this statue and that's where he died um and that he's like baron kurtz says that while he was dying harry lime told him to take care of holly martins and um but holly martins is like wait a minute the porter that i was talking to before told me that harry lime died instantly whenever he got hit by the car Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, he talked. He told me to take care of you. I was there. It's like at Treasure Sierra Madre. He's like, wait a minute. You said your friends were behind you with on horseback. Right. And you were walking. How were you going faster? He's like, wait mm-hmm. a second. Something's not adding up here. And then essentially we get the title of the movie right here, right? Uh, not quite. That's okay. a little <laughs> bit later. But yeah, because 
He was like, because well, Holly's like, oh, can I go talk to this Romanian guy, Popescu? And he's like, oh, no, he's gone. He left. You can't talk to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, and then Baron Kurtz mentions the Joseph Stott Theater is where the Anna Schmidt woman who was at the funeral can be found. And so he's like, all right, well, I'll go. He's like, he, she knew Harry Lyme, too. And so he's like, all right, I'll go talk to her. So he goes to a performance of hers and goes backstage and he's like i'm a friend of harry limes and he's like i'll and she's like i'll meet you after the present the uh performance here and so he goes to talk to her and and she's like harry lime never mentioned you um but i do know that baron kurtz guy and there's this doctor dr winkel um and uh hey I'm, dr he, winkel winkel yeah. <laughs> winkel it's like frankenstein <laughs> yeah He's like, he was the one who pronounced him dead. Um, and she's wondering, I think she mentions like Harry Lyme's own driver hit him or something. And she's like, I'm wondering if this wasn't even an accident at all. She's real suspicious of all this. And, and uh, he's like, okay. And so they both go back to talk to the porter who he talked with at the beginning. And he's like, so you saw it? And he's like, no, I didn't see it. I heard it. And then I heard the car happen, and then I went out and looked out the window, and I saw three people carrying Lime's body across the street dun, to dun, go underneath. Dun. Yeah, exactly. There was Baron Kurtz, there was a Romanian, and a third man who he didn't see his face. Who's the and third man? Who is the third man? Um, he also mentions, like, Holly's like, and the Baron Kurtz was talking about how Harry Lyme was talking, you know, and he's like, oh, no, the way his head was, there's no way he was talking. He died instantly right whenever that car hit him. Mm-hmm. There's, like, no way he could have talked. And so he's like, hmm, this is, things aren't adding up here. Um, and, and then he said, like, and then the doctor comes afterwards and a little bit later, and then... At that time, a phone call rings and Miss Schmidt, Anna Schmidt answers and no one's on the line. And uh, Martins is like, dude, Porter guy, you need to go to the police with this information. He's like, he gets real ticked off and is like, no way. And he kicks him out. He's not going to go to the police. I don't know why he doesn't go to the police. Yeah. I think he just distrusts them or maybe there's some, you know, cultural yeah. things happening at play here. No, they're after his friend. He's not, he's not going to go to them. Uh, they're gotcha. against him right now. Yeah, it, it changes, but they're against him right now. Mm-hmm. So already, there's peop- there's like three different people involved, and they're all telling three different stories, and you don't know who to believe. What's going on? They're all contradicting each other. Um, and this is you know it's setting up the big mystery of the movie of who is the third man, basically. Mm-hmm. So. What happens next? Uh, I don't know, but this is how far into the movie are we? Probably like 30 minutes, Kay, 40 minutes maybe. I would say around like 40 minutes maybe, but it's like an hour and 40 minutes or so. Yeah, the movie's about an hour and 40 minutes, yeah. And we don't see Orson. <laughs> no, he doesn't pop up until the second half. At, yeah, it's like almost toward, more closer to the like last third. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that is one of the things he talks about. Well, we'll talk. I'll mention that a little bit whenever he does pop up. Okay. Sorry. I went ahead um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Martins takes Anna Schmidt back and the police are searching her room. It's Callaway again. Um, they confiscate some love letters between her and Harry Lyme and along with her papers. Um, basically, um, Calloway orders Miss Schmidt to go with them. She kind of tells Martins that her papers are forged, um, that she actually should be kind of in the Russian zone because she's from Czechoslovakia. But um, I don't remember if she mentions it here or later, but Harry Lyme basically helped forge her papers so that she could be in the British zone. I guess that's the place to be or something. <laughs> um, and Martins tells Calloway about it, the, what the porter said, that there was a third man um, with the body of Harry Lyme. She's and like, then, wait, Harry Limeade's like, not dead. Harry Limeade? Yeah, I don't know. You just keep saying Harry Lime, and I just I have to finish. I'm like, Cherry Lime? <laughs> <laughs> I just love that name, Harry Lime. And they always refer to him as Harry Lime, full name. It's just such a, it's such a old school Hollywood kind of name, like in a, in a detective story. It's just such a great detective story name. Yeah. It's making me really thirsty. Anyways, keep going. <laughs> Go to Sonic after this. Yeah, I might need to. <laughs> <laughs> Martins goes to see Dr. Winkle. Um keeps calling him Winkle instead of Winkle and uh and he sees a little dog that kind of looks like the dog that Baron Kurtz was carrying and so he's kind of suspicious of this guy already. And then Dr. Winkle says Harry Lyme was run over by a car. He was dead when he arrived and he was there with two friends of his. Um and Martins asked him, could the death have been accidental or not accidental? And Dr. Vinkel's like, that's not my job. I can't give an opinion either way. He's like, I do know that the, the injuries would have been the same if it was on purpose or if it was accidental. And he's like, that's all I can speak to as a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not too much help, but he does kind of confirm the story that there was only two men there with Harry Lyme, not three. So he's either lying and 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 martin's joseph cotton's character is suspicious of him or the third man story is false but either way there's still these competing stories here that are going on mm-hmm. and then we cut to a short scene of calloway questioning miss schmidt and he's asking her if she knows a man named joseph harbin who disappeared the day um disappeared a while back um so we're wondering who this Joseph Harbin guy is. Another player in this mystery that we not we're not sure what's going on there, mm-hmm. but he's missing too. Um, then Martins and Miss Schmidt go to the Casanova Club, where Baron Kurtz and the Romanian are there. He's apparently returned. This is a His weird place, is... the Casanova Club. Yeah, is this the place where there's like an almost naked lady? Yeah, there's like strip teases, or they like mention that they're like. Oh, well, you know, so we have to entertainment here. So sometimes, like, you know, people will sing. Most of the time, people strip. Uh, but other times, uh-huh. we have, like, entertainment and dancers. And sometimes, Harry Lime comes by. <laughs> just like, yeah. They just, like, there's brush like a it lady under the lug. In, there's a lady in the background with, like, tassels on her boobs. Mm-hmm. And she's got, and, like, pasties like, on. just, like, sitting yeah. there. Just doesn't do anything. I'm like, this would not... This is how you know it's not an American movie. This would not fly with the production code. Yeah. I also thought... I was wondering if the Casanova Club was... Um, I don't know. It just reminded me of like Casablanca a little bit, like inside uh, of it. And I, was like, yeah. I wonder if that's a little jab. Maybe could be. Um, and so we meet this Popescu guy, the Romanian, who was one of the other guys that was at with Harry Lime's body. Um, and he's talking with Holly Martins, and he's like, "Yeah, I, I also." The Romanian guy's like, "I helped uh, Harry Lime fix 
Anna Schmidt's papers, and he kind of relates his version of what happened, which lines up with Baron Kurtz and Dr. Winkle's story. Um, and Martins questions him on the third man, and Popescu denies it. There was no third man. And then he asks him about Joseph Harbin, and he denies knowing anyone named Joseph Harbin. And, uh, and he, then he kind of warns Miss Schmidt. He's like, you need to be careful in Vienna. I don't know. He kind of threatens her. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a shady, shady dude. I mean, everyone in this movie is shady, but he's especially shady because he's like at telling him a story that seems legit at the same time. Cause like other people are telling the same story, but then he goes off and like threatens people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not the first, it's not the last time he threatens someone in this movie either. No. I feel like that happens uh, all the time in film noirs. Oh yeah, and be careful where you step. You might, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you might meet the business end of a of a gat. You just need like one reasonable investigator to be like, "Can everyone please stop saying stuff like that? We're trying to find a murderer, and everybody <laughs> seems really guilty right now." <laughs> yeah, we just, we just throw the whole town in jail. Uh, <laughs> this town is the murder town of the world because yeah. everyone is a murderer, and Early's acts like one. Everyone's a suspect. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Martins arranges to go back to see the porter again that night, and he stops by Miss Schmidt's place on the way there, I think, and she's talking about she's in love with Harry Lime and how she never wants to love again and how he's helped forge her papers, and then then they go to see the porter, but there's a crowd gathered around outside because the porter has been murdered. Oh, my gosh. And I think there was a quick scene before where the porter, like, right but when he got off the phone to, like, yeah, come over, he, like, turns and looks at the camera, and he obviously sees somebody yeah. that's standing there. We see that a couple of times. That happens a couple of times in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it was that guy he was talking to after um, Joseph Cotton talks to him. He, like, calls the porter, and he's like, uh-oh. He knows about the third man. He's like, he's on to yeah. us, and he's like, oh, okay. Um, we'll come right over, and then dun dun dun. He turns around, and we're like, "Who is it?" Yep, murdered. Murdered. Um, maybe it was the third man. <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> uh, as the body's kind of being carried out of the building, there's a kid there. He's shouting in German, and the crowd is kind of whispering. And Anna Schmidt translates it translates it for Holly Martin's, and basically they're like, "They think you did it, or they think you had something to do with this." Yeah, because when he was talking to the porter, the kid came up and was just like hanging around and talking, and then, um, like they walk up to the scene where they're bringing the body out, and the kid's like, "I know him. You, uh, you know my dad." Uh, you you did it, and you did it. It has to be you. <laughs> it's just yeah. like clearly saying that in German. That's why I was like, the this you know subtitleless German. It mm-hmm. it's pretty obvious what the hell the kid's doing. And Joseph Cotton just yeah. doesn't care, doesn't realize, doesn't pay any attention to what this kid's shouting. Clearly accusing him of murdering. Like he knows the kid. You should recognize mm-hmm. him. <laughs> right. But no, he just ignores it, and then takes this you know. Sp- native speaker of the language to be like um he's accusing you and all these people that we've been cutting to that are giving you shade right now they're Mm -hmm. about to chase you (laughs) yep and that's what happens they run off they leave the crowd is like following them they go to hide out in a theater uh she sneaks out and tells him go tell major calloway what's going on and uh he gets to his hotel and he tries to call calloway but he's like there's a driver waiting for you and so it's like all right i'll get in the car and he'll take me to calloway uh, but as soon as he gets in the car, this driver takes off. He's speeding around, and he's, like, trying to tell him to go to Callaway, but he's not listening. 
and he, without him knowing, he forgot that he had, the tonight was the night of that speech that he's supposed to make on the contemporary novel, and this guy was the driver that's supposed to get him to the event, and he was running late. Um, so it's like a moment of suspense, like this guy is working for the third man or something, and he's going to take him to his death right now or something, <laughs> but it's like, surprise, twist, it's just he's going to go talk at this cultural propaganda event. <laughs> and... He gets there and he starts talking and it's like kind of like a question and answer thing. Yeah. And Popescu, the uh, the Romanian, is there and he asks him if he's writing anything now. And he's like, yeah, I'm writing a, a book called The Third Man. And it's mm -hmm. based, it's a crime story that's based on fact. And they're kind of like openly taunting one another. He's like, I, and Popescu's like, I think you should stick to fiction. <laughs> and he's like, I like this fact-based story about a third man. You know anything about it? Anyone I could talk to? Kind of, and so, and then uh, Popescu is like there with some thugs. And he's like, come on, let's, again, threatens him again openly. And Martins has to go run off again. Uh, this is weird, a weird kind of moment. He runs back and he's like in this dark room and he's like, he hears some shuffling around. He's like, who's there? And he turns the light on and there's like this loud parrot that's squawking. Who is it? Yep, it's the cane parrot. It's the cane cockatoo thing. <laughs> I want. I like. I saw it. I was like, "That's got to be the same one." <laughs> yeah, and it, he goes by, and it like bites him, and then he goes out the window, and he's running through the city. Some really cool shots in the dark of him running through this like rubble. The rubble. There's like a burned out car that he hides in for a little while, and basically he eludes the guys and manages to get to Calloway's um, office. Mm -hmm. But yeah, very Kane-like in the way this this movie looks. The rubble is a really cool, like post World War II European the edition bird. thing. The bird. <laughs> it's uh, it's such a it's a this part of the movie is a little bizarre with that parrot. It's like for the rest of the movie, he's got like a bandaid on his finger. He's like, what? People keep asking him, like, what is like ah parrot bit me? <laughs> it's like that's so bizarre. And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> What's the matter with your hand? Parrot bit me. Oh, stop behaving like a fool, Martins. Yeah, there's no other... It doesn't have anything else to do except for, I guess, it just was there to kind of have another little red herring moment of, like, he thinks someone else is in the room with him, but it's it ends a, up just being... It's not a red herring moment. It's a white parrot moment, brother. Come on. Uh, <laughs> black and white parrot moment, yeah. <laughs> um, well, anyway, back at Calloway's office, Calloway is, is showing Martin some slides and evidence about the case of Harry Lyme, basically. Um... So here is where we learn a little bit more about who Harry Lyme was and what he was up to. He was about um, one-third Sprite, uh, one-third uh, <laughs> cherry. I don't know what else. One-third one lime. Uh, <laughs> lime, you got it. And one-third aid. That's cherry, right. lime, and aid. Uh, anyway. he, <laughs> who was Harry, Harry Lyme? <laughs> he uh, basically um, was... There was a man named Joseph Harbin who was uh, worked at a hospital mm -hmm. who stole a bunch of penicillin and gave it to Harry Lyme. They would dilute this penicillin and then sell it back for higher prices. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of outbreak of some disease or something. Like meningitis and or something. Meningitis, like that. that's it. 
and they're using this diluted penicillin to treat it, and all these kids are dying mm-hmm. um, because they've messed up the medicine, basically, just so that hairy lime can make a buck. Yeah, it's not as strong, so then the antibacterial antibiotic doesn't actually kill all the bacteria, and then some of it can gain resistance, and then yeah, that's how death happens. Yeah, and so hairy lime is a terrible, terrible human. Just out um, to make a buck. He's despicable. And Joseph Harbin, who is missing, is the guy who worked for the hospital that was helping him to steal the penicillin. Mm-hmm. So um, there's... Calloway tells Martins he can only protect him in the hotel and not out on the streets. So you need to be care. He needs to. Be, he warns him to be careful. And uh, Martin doesn't. He leaves and goes to the club. This is where like you see like there's a woman wearing like booby tassels and that she's like, I'm like okay, this is a different movie. Um, and then uh, she really helps a- push the plot along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's like all these people in these different booths in this in this club are just kind of looking at him. And so again, it's ramping up the tension. Everyone's suspicious and kind of who's gonna be who might kill this guy. We don't know. Holly Martin's is in danger. Um. And uh, so he leaves and he goes to Anna Schmidt's place and he's drunk and he's like, I'm going to America. This place is crazy. Uh, I'm just here to say goodbye. Um, she's got a cat and the cat is like, doesn't let him pet him. And she's like, oh, that cat hates everybody except for Harry Lime. Mm-hmm. And the cat like runs out the window or something. Mm-hmm. And Miss um, Schmidt had also met with Calloway and they talked about the info that they found out about Harry Lyme and Joseph Harbin. And then meanwhile, the camera has a really cool effect where it goes through. There's like some oh, plants on the, the windowsill. Yes. Best transition we've seen. I think maybe so far out of any movie. Yeah. The only other ones that I can think of are the, well, is the Kane. one of Kane going through the roof. Yes. Yes. And or through the window too. That's a, yeah. Kane, yeah. It's a very Keynesian kind of transition here, edit here, but it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, the camera just slowly goes into this plants on the windowsill and then it kind of, as it goes, it fades in and out and dissolves or whatever. And then the camera's on the other side and it just kind of hovers over as you look out the window and over the street. It feels below. like the camera flew through the plant and then mm-hmm. up out the window and now you're looking down on the street. Yeah, and in one smooth movement. It's done really, really well. And there we see a man who's on the street and he's kind of hiding in the shadows. And we see the cat walk up and cuddle up on his feet. And... uh we're like, oh, she said that this cat hates everybody except yeah, for Harry Lime. <laughs> but Harry Lime's dead, so who's this? Mm-hmm. Um, and back in the apartment, Martins is trying to flirt with this girl basically before he leaves, and she's not having any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes down, and he's um, he walks past that street right outside the apartment, and he sees a little glimpse of the man hiding in the shadows with the cat, and he's like, Hey, you know, he's drunkenly yelling at him. He's like, what's the big deal? Why are you following me? Come out and, you know, kind of taunting him, basically. What kind of a spy do you think you are, Satchel Foot? What are you tailing me for? Cat got your tongue? Come on out. Come out, come out, whoever you are. Step out in the light and let's have a look at you. Who's your boss? 
and a woman from an upstairs apartment building is like yelling in German. She's really mad, basically, that this guy is drunkenly yelling outside. And she turns on a light in her apartment and it shines directly into the dark doorway, lighting up the face of the man who's hiding there. In a really great shot and reveal, we see Orson Welles' Harry Lime. Hello, Orson. And it is one of my favorite introductions or first time that we see a, a character that we've in a movie. It's just we've been talking about this guy for like an hour of the movie and boom, the light just turns on and we're like, <gasps> and the camera just slowly kind of pushes in on his face and he gives this little smirk and, and then he turns and, and uh, runs off through the dark. Harry! Yeah, he like backs up into the darkness and then a car drives by and then yes. the car passes Joseph. Uh, Cotton tries to walk towards the doorway and he's gone. And then we mm-hmm. see like a shadow of somebody running on the side of the street alley or in the alley or something. And also what a cool subtle callback is that we've learned that Harry Lime, all these stories is that he got killed basically when someone across the street waved at him he tried to cross the street and a car comes and hits him Mm -hmm. uh and then holly martin's in this moment sees a guy from across the street he tries to cross the street to go and a car almost hits him it's the exact same thing (laughs) yeah the exact same thing but he stops he doesn't get run over by the car and then when the car passes though harry lime is gone and yeah some great shots of you here echoing running footsteps and some shadows but you kind of he lost Martins has lost him and he and he can't find him after chasing down. Oh, okay, uh, that is him for a while. That is a really cool callback. It's like what took him out of this world or what you're supposed to think took him out of this movie. Um, we have it, we see it for real, and it's actually what brings him back into this movie. Yeah, it's really really subtle but really clever. And the movie that's there's one there's two there's one other moment where there's a really cool little mirror of something. Um, which I already kind of hinted at from the beginning, but this was a really, I thought really a cool thing to do. Yeah, that's um, Harry Lime, uh, Orson Welles called like, he was like, this was a great star part. Um, he's like, he loved to play characters where, um, I think it was in the, like Peter Bogdanovich does an intro to the movie. Um, and on this clip that I found and, uh, he's talking about how Orson Welles was, there was this one play that he was in where, he was like, he played a role of like Mr. Jones or something. And he's like, the whole first act of the movie, everyone's talking about like, we'll say things like, what's going to happen when Mr. Jones gets here? Or what, what will Mr. Jones think about this? Or I wonder what Mr. Jones will have to say. And then like one minute before the act one ends and you go to the intermission, uh, Mr. Jones appears for the first time, you know, he's, they've been, and, and then like the light boom shines on his face. And he's like, that is a great intro that it just he loved very to play those roles very very yes. theatrical those roles where it's like everyone's talking about you and then eventually whenever you do show up it's like oh my god so well that's a mirror is... to his life too that's just how he likes his attention <laughs> oh definitely definitely so he loved this role i think this was kind of he ate this up sounds um, like Orson, all right <laughs> yeah uh, so Martins goes to get Calloway, tell him what he saw, and they kind of, this is where I lost him, and they discover there's a staircase leading down into the sewers below the city. And they're like, oh, he's probably been running around under the city. And so 
Um, Calloway then has Lime's grave dug up, and re- they re- find out that the body in the coffin is Joseph Harbin's body, not Harry Lime's body. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, dun, dun, dun. And uh, meanwhile, I think the police are going to go arrest Anna Schmidt because of her forged papers and Martins tells Schmidt that he saw Lyme and and Calloway is questioning Schmidt to see if she knows where Lyme is and she's like I wish he was dead because then he would be safe from all of you people basically um, so even though she knows what he was up to she still loves the guy yeah and that's what kind of that doesn't sit very well with uh, Joseph Cotton He's already not very happy once he found out about the, um, and that's what he talks about with her whenever he's drunk and he goes over there and he like kind of hits on her right before he meets him. Um, Mm -hmm. She's like, did they tell you about uh, Harry? And he's like, yeah, what the hell? He's diluting medicine and selling it Mm -hmm. for hire and people are dying. And now he's probably sketchily hiding and running away and killing other people. Um, Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, yeah, he goes and finds out that he's alive and she's like super loyal to him still. And he's like, okay. Maybe those police guys at the beginning that I was against, maybe they are definitely right. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you just mentioned brought up, reminded me of this thing of like, this movie not only shares a lot of actors from Citizen Kane and Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, it, it not only shares a lot of the stylistic look and everything, but it also shares a big theme that, that Citizen Kane had of like uh, childhood friends that that fall have a falling out and you know they grow distrustful and hateful of each other over the years basically you know joseph Joseph cotton Cotton and orson wells (laughs) and orson wells you know jed leland and and charles foster kane uh they grew they were like the best of friends and then they kind of grow real distant and hate each other by the end of the movie Mm -hmm. and uh same thing here joseph cotton in this movie you know best of friends of orson wells growing up and then you just slowly over time in this movie throughout the story of this movie gets revealed more of like i cannot be I associated like with this that guy, guy. i can't defend exactly. him this guy's disgusting let's take him down mm-hmm. same exact thing as that happens in citizen king um martins goes to talk to baron kurtz again um but baron kurtz is like come inside and he's like uh-uh i'm not going inside uh you come outside but also i know that you know that harry lime is alive and you've been lying to me this whole time so um i want to see lime and i'm gonna go wait by this ferris wheel across the street um you tell him you tell harry lime to meet with me there so he goes over to the ferris wheel and we see a man kind of slowly approaching from far away and it's orson wells it's harry lime and this is probably the best scene in the movie when they board the ferris wheel and talk yeah you say that but i don't really remember anything that they talk about nor really care <laughs> oh it, really <laughs> yeah I, I know what's gonna happen i mean i know what the emotional like dilemma is i know what the moral dilemma is here between these old friends like this is the conflict scene where they have to dish it out and it's like uh don't you remember me like i called you to bring you here i wanted you to help me through this thing and he's like yeah but you're killing people he's like yeah but i'm profiting Mm -hmm. and he's like yeah Mm -hmm. but you're killing people and he's like yeah but i'm profiting and it's me (laughs) against the world and yeah very orson welles selfish um Mm -hmm. evil you it just Like he's, you just met him and then he really just goes off and he's, he's very bad. And you're like, yeah. okay, Joseph Cotton, you know who you're, whose side you're choosing now. Like, screw this guy. 
Um, he's about to go to the Russian zone here. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it's the probably the best acted scene in the movie and the best written scene in the movie. Um, because they board the thing and there's some really great tension as as uh, they get near the top and Harry Lyme opens the door to the Ferris wheel. And he's like, so there's this tension of like, is he going to push um, Holly Martin's out? Um, or is Holly Martin's going to push Harry Lyme out? You know, someone is someone falling out of this Ferris wheel kind of a thing. Um, but Harry Lyme, he looks down at all the crowds of people. and He's like, look at all those people. They look like dots. And he's like. Uh, you it's know, just how I how... see people too. They're just numbers. <laughs> yeah, he's like, if some of these dots kind of Pictures. stopped moving, big you know, dramatic. what kind of that's not a loss. <laughs> he's like, that's not a big like. They're just really dots. And he's like, and if I told you that you'd get twenty thousand dollars per dot that stopped moving, if how many dots would you want to stop moving? Dot that stopped? Would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money, or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin free of income tax, old man? It's really inhuman and terrible dehumanize um, these people <laughs> yeah and it, you really get to see um harry lime's pers- terrible twisted perspective of the world um but uh, and he, eventually he kind of laughs and closes the door and then he he's like you know governments talk about the people and the proletariat and i talk about suckers and mugs he's like yeah uh, there's no, he's like, basically, he's like, there's no difference between me and the government, but the government is, you know, lauded as, as, a, as applauded for being good or whatever. And he's like, I'm the same as the government. Uh, but it's like, both of them are viewing people as like, no, not people. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's just he does, rationalizing his evil and James, uh, Joseph Cotton's just watching him. Yeah. And then there's a little moment where it's like in the glass, Harry Lime like writes Anna Schmidt's name with a little heart with an arrow through it. Um, with his finger and then he goes they get off the ferris wheel and they arrange a meeting for the two of them later and then he gives probably the most famous line in the movie uh, harry lime says well, what the fella said in italy for 30 years under the borgias they had warfare terror murder and bloodshed but they produced michelangelo leonardo da vinci and the renaissance in switzerland they had brotherly love they had 500 years of democracy and peace and what did that produce the cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. And then he leaves. And that apparently was a Orson Welles line. Yeah, that one sounds like an Orson Welles line. It just sounds like confirmation bias for him, just, you know, rationalizing his own beliefs and his own evilness yet again. Um, it is 100% that on all accounts. Yeah, that line. Whenever I hear things like that, anybody, even in films or just like real people, I tend to ignore the content of what they're saying. And I'm just like, oh... You missed his soul. <laughs> I, yeah, but it's so cool sounding, and it's so intriguing that he is so certain and sure of himself that he is not only um, benefiting himself, but in some twisted way, he thinks that he's benefiting the world. I don't think it's cool at all. I think I think that's... it sounds really cool. I think it's such like a 
like a kind of like a cigarette flicking like i'm a cool dude like no. that is a really n- cool nifty no. line <laughs> i think it's more like a sucker punch like i'm going to say something that we could discuss for a long time and that you know i could probably give up and i don't really <laughs> have much to say to support what i'm about to say here so i'm gonna just throw this line out of here and then peace out and run away from you and never let you have any <laughs> chance to rebuke or make me change my mind see you later i'm evil yeah it is definitely like i'm supposed to be and intended to be like a mic drop line yeah but it's just like, like... just to sum up my viewpoint cuckoo clock like <laughs> mic drop <laughs> kind yeah. of thing um, like, okay yeah his viewpoints to be clear are total poo-poo. Yeah, they, um. <laughs> they didn't need to be summed up, I guess. It's just they're, they're so narrow and so myopic. It's like, I don't know. You don't need to even say that. I, I got it. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it, him doing it in that way cements his evilness in a, in a really cool, succinct way. Um, it's kind of like uh, the Hannibal Lecter, you know, I, census taker line of the nice key ante kind of thing it's just like okay dude this guy is bad news bears yeah anyways um so he leaves um and then martins goes to meet calloway and uh he's like i'm you know i might give up lime he's like kind of he's like yeah i might uh I'm, i'm thinking about giving up my best friend from childhood basically after meeting with this guy and learning what he's been up to but he's Mm -hmm. still conflicted a little bit um, uh, but he's like, but I'll do it for a price. And what the price is, is basically that Anna Schmidt gets out of there and she gets safe. Um, so we cut to the train station and Anna Schmidt is boarding a train and, um, on the train, she kind of sees Martin's through a window and she's like, what's going on? So she gets off and approaches him and he's like, I thought I heard something about you leaving at the police. So I kind of wanted to see you off. Uh, but she's really suspicious and she's like no you're planning something what's going on here i'm not leaving until you tell me martin's eventually kind of reveals that he's helping calloway uh capture harry lime and she's like poor harry and berates martin's for having you know his precious honesty and she feels terrible for harry lime she's basically clearly still in love with him and the train leaves without her on it and she leaves the bar uh and Martin goes back to Calloway. She's like, she didn't leave. And, and Calloway, and so now Martin's is still conflicted. And so Calloway to try in an effort to try and cement it, he takes Martin's to the children's hospital where he sees all of the kids who are suffering and dying. Thanks to Lyme's penicillin racket. Mm-hmm. And it's really terrible. There's beds and beds of sick kids and there's abandoned teddy bears. And, and, uh, he's like, all right. Callaway, I'm convinced I'll be your dumb decoy duck, is what he says to catch Harry Lime. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we go to the meeting that basically Martins was going to arrange with Harry Lime. He's at a cafe looking out the window, and Callaway and a bunch of the other military police are stationed all around looking for for uh, Harry Lime. And there's all kinds of little moments of like some tension in this thing, and then. Uh, Harry Lime kind of appears from a roof to kind of overlook the cafe in the area and and uh, Anna Schmidt appears and she's kind of berating Martins and and she calls him a police informer just as Harry Lime enters into the cafe and this kind of and he this and this begins the climax of the film where Harry Lime pulls a gun out and starts running. Oh, you mean this begins the end of The Fugitive? 
Yes, yes, because he immediately he goes into the sewers and the police enter into the sewers and we have a long drawn out chase scene through the sewers. Very, the fugitive has to be influenced by this. It, there's no way it could have come from anything else. <laughs> yeah, it's, it looks so similar. But and then there's just all kinds of great shots of lime running around corners. It's super really interestingly lit. There's shat- the shadows, the angles, the framing of everything is just the so echoes, cool. It's, yeah, it's neat. Yeah, the echoing of the footsteps. You're not sure like where, which tunnel they're coming from. Um, you know, they they'll shine a light and they see him running, and so they'll take off. And they, you know, that he he kind of gets away a little bit and has managed to escape, and he'll get cornered again, and then he'll find another way to kind of weasel out of it. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, Martin sees Harry and and Lime kind of Harry Lime turns around and fires, and he kills Payne the uh, police partner of Calloway. And then Calloway fires and hits Harry Lime. And Lime is crawling away. He gets to a staircase and he tries to climb up to escape. And he kind of gets to the top where there's a grate and he sticks his fingers through to open it, but his like fingers fall back down. I guess he didn't have enough strength to lift the grate up or something. But it's a really cool shot of on top of the city street and you see his fingers through the grate as he's like trying to reach for freedom and his escape but he can't quite dying make on the it stairs yeah mm-hmm. i think the most interesting part of this scene for me was um the was pain getting shot and um finally seeing what's his face um joseph cotton holly martin or whatever um mm-hmm. go to pain's aid first instead of to his friend who also got shot um he, he chose uh, yeah. he chose sides of the the fan of his work the, um, yes. the neutral guy at the beginning who you know he wasn't totally opposed to he he had more um, connection with that guy than he did with his own evil child killing friend and mm-hmm. yeah we get to they have a cool shot where they look at each other while he's dying on the stairs and then um, that's like yeah. the end yeah Callaway he he um. He, oh no, Martin's yeah, runs and he sees Lime and they kind of stare at each other. And we cut back to Callaway, who's further back down in the tunnel, and we hear a gunshot and we see a man in silhouette appearing, but we're not certain who shot who. If Lime shot Martin's or if Martin shot Lime. And then we go to a next, we cut to a next scene. We're at a funeral and Anna Schmidt pours dirt on a grave, and then we see Martin's walking away from the grave with Callaway. So that's the moment that we realize that. Martin's ended up shooting his childhood friend, Harry Lyme, and now he's officially really dead. Um, and then Calloway's like, I'll give you a ride to the airport, Martin's, to get out of here. And uh, they drive past Anna Schmidt as they're kind of talking about her, and in the mirror of the beginning of the movie, this time instead of Calloway turning to look at Schmidt, uh, Martin's turns around and looks at Schmidt in almost the exact same style of the shot. And uh, he's like, you know what, let me off here and uh he gets out of the car and he kind of goes to the left side of the frame and as the car drives off and he waits there for anna schmidt to approach and anna schmidt walks closer and closer to the camera in one really really long take and she just walks straight past him without looking at him towards the camera and out of view leaving martin's alone on the left side of the frame he doesn't follow her he just lights up a cigarette and that's the end of the third man. So who is the third man? Oops, Terry Lime. Yeah. 
Terry. Yeah, the the bo- the dead body was actually the already dead or just murdered, actually dead body of Joseph Harbin, mm-hmm. and they pretended like that was Harry Lyme. Mm-hmm. So that's some. It's never the movie's never really explicit about that, but there's like been. I was reading some things like people are like, so wait, who was the third man? Like, <laughs> so yes, the third man was Harry Lyme himself. The there was the fourth man, I guess, was Joseph Harbin. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, anyway, so the movie comes out, like I said, it's primarily a British film. So my guess was that it was probably released in, in the UK in 1949 and maybe didn't get over to America until 1950. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it was the third highest grossing film of the UK in the year that it comes out. Great reviews at the time. And its legacy has really stood the test of time. I think the British Film Institute ranks it as the greatest British film of all time. What? Yeah, the, the the BFI, not the AFI. The BFI has it at one point the ranked at the greatest British film of all time. Okay. And uh, it's some people at the time complained about the tilted angles the uh, in the movie. Um, they're like, why can't he just like set it straight? This is like I'm I'm t- I'm dizzy or something. You know? <laughs> but I was like, I think it adds a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets nominated for three Academy Awards: Best Director and Best Editing, and it wins one of them. Uh, Robert Krasker for black and white cinematography. Hmm. And uh, the American Film Institute has it ranked at number 57. It's the number five best mystery movie of all time. It's ranked number 75 on the best thrills list. And Harry Lime is ranked as the number 37 best villain. Hmm. All right. That's all I got on the movie. Yeah, I'm, I don't, that's all I got. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about what makes it great. I think you went first last time. Yeah, I did. You go first so, this time. Okay, so I love the look and feel of this movie. It's very Citizen Kane influenced. It really makes it artsy and interesting, and I think adds a lot to the mystery and suspense of the story. Uh, it does feel very intriguing and maze-like, much like the sewers of the movie. The mm-hmm. The sewers are just kind of twisty-turny, and this story is very twisty-turny, and I love the performances, particularly Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. Um, this is actually one of the best surprises of the list for me i think the best years of our lives is one of the movies recently that i had never seen before and i really really loved and this is another movie that i had never seen before and really really loved this movie as well um i think uh, i like i guess the film noir genre I, i like double indemnity a lot more than i thought i was going to and i think this movie i like even more than double indemnity hmm. and i think that's what makes it a great movie for me nice. how about for you brother um you know i gotta think about this one um i it it was great it was it was entertaining um and it was it was fun um i love seeing joseph cotton and orson wells again and yes you know i really love citizen kane um but i i think okay so let me let me talk about good things in it before i finish um the cinematography was great the shots were dynamic the acting was fantastic the you know script was unique and the time period and the context and everything was it was nice um Mm -hmm. i don't think this belongs on the list i think this is uh and a brit this is a british film if it's number one on a bfi all time um Mm -hmm. i i love you orson welles whenever you brought up peter bogdanovich i was like of course he did an intro um, yeah. to this movie because it's Orson He's Wells. obsessed with Orson Welles. Yeah, so <laughs> that doesn't really say much if Peter Bogdanovich really likes this movie. The fact that 
The BFI also thinks that this one's one of the best of all time. It's technically not, you know, Orson Welles, but it just is like vibes of Charlie Chaplin of like, why are these movies, why does he consistently have so many up here? Um, Mm. It makes me skeptical. But the fact that it was a British director, that it aired in Britain first in the 1940s and, you know, my thing said 1950s. So like, I don't know, do I include this in the, in this decade of films? You know, do I not? How do I, how does it fit in with this list? And I don't think it does. Like, I think that yeah. my film knowledge and uh, film history knowledge uh, definitely expanded by watching this movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. I don't think it has much context American wise in American history, not nowhere near what Citizen Kane does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I question why it's number one or was number one at one point in the BFI's list because. I don't think that it has that much cultural, uh, historical impact as like a cane would for England, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's, it, it was great. And like, as a movie nerd, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and you know, go see it if you, you know, like Joseph Cotton or if you like Citizen Kane, but I, yeah, I just, I can't say that I keep this one on my list. Wow. Yeah, and so this might be one that in our next episode we might have some discussions around because uh, I might rank this one quite a bit higher on my version of the list, um, whereas you might rank it quite a bit lower on your version. So oh, I'm, I'm looking uh, forward to that. Yeah, I think we may have some pretty uh, nice discrepancies on this uh, award show next week. That's great. <laughs> because So that, that's a great transition. So next week we're not going to be talking about a movie because this was the final movie of a decade. So... Our next episode will be a look back at the movies we watched in the 1940s and giving out some awards and updating our overall rankings of movies. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I, yeah, me too. I really looked for. I really liked our previous episode where we did this, so I've been looking forward to this next little update um, to this what makes it great special kind of episode. Yay. All right, so that's next time on What Makes It Great. But this has been the th- a discussion of The Third Man. And for this time, my- oh, I forgot. Please, if you're <laughs> listening, please like, comment, subscribe, as people say. Um, leave review, share the podcast with all your family and friends. And uh, we appreciate all of you for listening. And uh, we love all hearing all of your feedback. So um, keep it coming. Um, but my name is Andy Fernandez. <laughs> my name is Michael Fernandez. Thank you guys for joining us on What Makes It Great. 